Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. Along with J.J. Cooper, I'm John Manuel. Boy, it's been a while, J.J., since we podcasted together. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I well, the draft happened. Well, the draft happened. You know, I'm doing the the JJ and the Bear, and you're doing you and Clint. We've we've gone on. We're we're we're, we're interacting with separate people. And if somebody wants to uh, do a JJ and the Bear uh, podcast theme song for when JJ and Josh Norris, because they do uh, ride the rails or they ride the roads of North Carolina, the Southeast, going to minor league games and. Josh does not like being compared to a chimpanzee, but he certainly <laughs> does enjoy the bear nickname. So that would be cool. Uh, I would we would uh, we would encourage reader uh, participation in the podcast. Speaking of participation, thank you again to Connor Glassy for our uh, very cool intro. Absolutely, uh, listener and alumnus uh, Connor Glassy, and we also want people to not forget that it's draft season, so don't forget Baseball America's draft offer. Subscribe now and receive one extra month of access with any premium content subscription. Go to BaseballAmerica.com slash subscribe to partake in Baseball America's draft order. But, J.J., we're taking a little break from the draft because every scout Although we talk everything to, is related. This is it a- is. It is really, they're all related. They all tie in. But every scout you talk to, amateur side, pro side, and a lot of them are doing, especially the pro guys, a lot of them, I'm sure, are doing a little bit of both. They're checking in. They're cross-checking. They're going to in the next coming weeks with conference tournaments going on. Um if this is what everyone's talking about in baseball, J.J., is this proliferation, I suppose you would say, of arm injuries. And we've talked about it a lot. We've got a couple stories going in the next issue of the magazine. I guess, first off, are there more Tommy John surgeries in your mind? Can we document that there are more young pitchers, especially, going down with arm injuries now than maybe there were a couple of years ago? Or are there just more high-profile arms getting hurt now? Yes, there are more. Um, three of the last four years that we have seen. Now, this year we're not done yet, but three of... Certainly early. We're early, but we're we're already ahead of pace of a down year. Like, we're already... At, if, if no one else... If no one else in the big leagues got cut on from now to... For Tommy John, from now to the end of the year, it would be a, quote, normal year. And I hate to break really? it to you. Really? More, that drastic? Yes. yes. Oh, wow. The, as I was... We, we both have talked to a number of people. I've tried to talk to a number of doctors and, you know, and, and team, you know, trainers and all about this. And, and as one made the point to say, we hoped, we had, we had a, an uptick three years ago. The year after that, we didn't. And we go, okay. So you hope that's a blip. Hope that's a blip. Last year was another uptick. Okay, you hope it's two blips. When you got three blips in four years, it's not a blip anymore. Now it looks like 2011 is the blip. Yes. On the on the trend being up. Yes, and I, I've had people ask the questions of, are people, you know, getting Tommy John that didn't need it before or not would opt not to? And I, I think there's, I think that's no. I'm not saying that there aren't. Let I'll, I'll do a little PSA here. If you are a high school parent, you know, I've talked to doctors who say that they have. Parents and, and high school athletes who come in and say, hey, I want Tommy John because they think that it'll make their ligament stronger, that they'll throw harder, all that. No. 
Even Go though, away. <laughs> even though we're in an information age, JJ, it seemed like there was so much misinformation. I mean, I, I'm not going to stick to baseball and not politics, but there's so much misinformation in today's world. It's very easy to be led in the wrong path because there's just as much wrong, if it, not more, than there is right. You will not talk to a reputable doctor who will perform a Tommy John on a healthy elbow. It's not a good thing to do. For one, do remember... Everyone likes to think of this, and we've talked about this on the podcast many a time. This is not a 100% guaranteed you are going to be back to where you were. Yeah. It is a high likelihood. The numbers are somewhere between 8 and 9 out of every 10 professional pitchers who undergoes Tommy John should return to the previous, level, previous levels. Basically. Right. That leaves levels of performance. The previous level of stuff. But that leaves, that means there are guys. I mean, the, the example, I hate to keep using him, but he's, but John Lamb was one of the best pitching prospects in baseball. Yeah, he was. John Lamb had Tommy John. John Lamb post-Tommy John has is, is a fringe prospect at best because his velo did not come back. You go to the high school level, the success rate on this, paper uh, just came out on this, looked at this, the success rate on is is lower. It's more like seven to eight of every ten guys. And you just said eight to nine. For, for the right, time. so it's it's less. Now, there are some, if all these studies, you, you then say, okay, well, there's a lot of reasons for that. One may be that some guys say, I'm not going through this, and they give up on the sport. Like, if you weren't going to be uh, a professional baseball player and you're a junior pitcher and you blew out your arm, you may say, I'm not going to go to college to pitch. Why would I go through all this? Or you could be a guy who does go through it, and you don't have the pro or the college rehab program, and you don't and you don't make it back from it. You just don't have the level of facilities, trainer, all those kind of things. It's just very difficult. That might be if you're a pro for some guys, but not for all. If you're a pro, if you're a pro, if you want an idea of how the pro pitcher goes through, Dirk Hayhurst's new book did a really good job because he went through. You know, it's talking about him going through rehab. It wasn't a, a shoulder of him, if I remember right, not Tommy John, but. He's going through the rehab. If you're a pro pitcher, he spent time in Birmingham, you know, working on this and rehab and all that. It's like, hey, let's send you to the best place we can to get you back. And that's nothing. It's Dirk. That's, that's all you do. That's your, but that's your job. That's his job. That's your job. He was getting paid to rehab, which in high school, if you're or if you're an amateur, yeah, you're doing that, but you're also going to class. And you're doing all the other things that you do when you're an amateur. Right. You aren't in total control of your schedule when you're an amateur like you are when you're a professional and you're being paid to do nothing but rehab. And that's really, correct me if I'm wrong, the rehab is why pitchers think that they, or parents right. think they get better or there's, you might throw harder. Because you're, the rehab basically gets you in shape a lot of times, better shape than you were before, number one. And number two, you basically have to relearn how to pitch. And so your you mechanics. Might get rid of some bad habits mechanically or delivery-wise. <laughs> And there is a third thing, which is is that a lot of times what will happen is is that yes, if you compare, uh, as another trainer put it to me, fifty uh, percent in his he did a study, fifty percent of Tommy John injuries when you ask the pitcher, it's an acute injury, and fifty percent of the time they feel fine, they throw a pitch, something they feel pops, they're done. There's basically a trauma. Right. There's a moment. You hear the pop, those kind of things. That's one out of every two. The other one of every two is a guy who it's a steady, wow, my elbow hurts. It gets worse. It gets worse. 
It's not that they had a clean, like, uh, it's a ligament. It's not, in those cases, it's not something where they had a clean break. It's something where it was torn, it's more torn, and eventually... It might heal a little bit, but never back was, to full. Right, you're, you're going to just keep pitching. When you say heal, it's not going to reattach itself. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah. You're going to keep, you can keep, you can keep pitching with it in those cases sometimes, but it's a, you're, you're probably not going to have the same effectiveness and eventually you're, you're effectively going to have the surgery. But in those cases, if you've got a non-acute one and you say, wow, I was throwing 91 before the surgery and now I'm throwing 93. Well, if you were pitching with a partially torn ligament before the surgery, exactly. you weren't fully healthy. And so if you combine the rehab program, improved mechanics, and now a strong ligament and you didn't have that, well, yes, you may throw harder. But that doesn't mean like that this is something where this isn't, well, you know, I'm like, this isn't like popping a drug and saying, you know, I'm I'm better. It's, it, all those factors go into it. But again, this is something, if you have to have Tommy John in some way, if you're not a 38 year old pitcher, if, if you're Nolan Ryan and as at 45, if at 45, Nolan Ryan, your ligament pops. You just you, you pat the ligament on the head and say, "Well done, sir." That's right. You know, <laughs> you threw you handled 200 pitch outings, you handled 100 miles an hour for 20 years. Great job. But if you're doing this, if you're talking about Tommy John and you're 22, you're 23, you're 18, in some way it it's a we failed as a you know, baseball has failed. We don't want to see 23-year-old Tommy Johns. No, and we don't want to see... The interviewers don't want to see 20-year-old Tommy Johns. Or 18. Or 21. But we just had a couple this month, in the last two weeks. You know, basically right before JJR, or right as our first part of our draft preview is going to press, three of the top college starters, Brandon Finnegan, Jeff Hoffman, Eric Fetty, missed starts. And Aaron Fitt and Clint Longenecker and I... Uh, kind of heading up our draft coverage this year, got our meeting in the conference room, and we're like, now, odds are one of these three guys is probably going to get cut on. And we were low, you know. Two of three. Two out of three. Now, Finnegan returned and pitched four innings last night. I just talked to two, talked to one scout and texted another who are in Dallas today. And why are they in Dallas? Because they're there to see Brandon Finnegan. And everybody wants to see, you know, he threw four innings last weekend. Is Brandon Finnegan okay? You know, so... The, the the draft has been impacted. It seems like every year there's an injury or two or th- about co- with college pitchers. But you know, five years ago it was Tanner Shepherds, and it was like turned out to be what a back, I believe it was with Tanner mm-hmm. Shepherds, and then Kyle Gibson the next year. And Kyle Gibson was more it was forearm, and you probably knew he was going to have that Tommy John surgery. He did, and before that it was Andrew Brackman, and Andrew Brackman he knew he was going to have Tommy John surgery, and plus he was six eleven and. Never a full-time baseball player. The first time he was ever a full-time baseball player, his elbow blew out. So you have all these different cases. But this is two of the prominent guys. I think, so there's a couple directions we could go here, J.J. One of them is that uh, Eric Fetty and and Jeff Hoffman, there's been all this talk about pitch counts. Last night, we're recording this on Thursday morning. Last night, there was all this Twitter hullabaloo over a high school pitcher at a 1A school in Washington State who threw 194 pitches. And it should. That is bad. You know, I'm not spinning it good or bad. I do think two things that made me think of. First of all, you had a pro scout who made a great point. That hasn't changed. 
that factor, so if we're trying to find out why more injuries, so the point of a lot of the discussion in the industry is why, why are there more injuries? Why are we seeing this three out of four years, this rising tide of elbow injuries? And first off, that kind of usage at the amateur level, that is not new and that has not changed. And if anything, it's gotten better. And now we're starting to see, JJ, thanks to some of your research, there's a lot of evidence that it, that is getting better at the college level. Because we went looking through the pitch counts of Fetty and Hoffman, as we've done for uh, Carlos Rodon, and as we've also done for some Japanese pitchers who are the same age, 20 and 21-year-olds, mm-hmm. as these college guys the last two years. And, JJ, you, you've got some data, and we're going to, again, we'll present the, the full findings in the print edition of the magazine next week online. But it sounds like pitch count trends in, in college, the pitch count trends at the college level aren't the same as they are in the major leagues, and certainly not in the minor leagues, but they're trending more in that direction. They are, and I, I think the, the, one of the points of the story is going to be is that we, there's a lot we do not know. When you, talk about, when you talk about pitch counts on a seven-day rotation, the data, there's just not much data out there uh, compared to everything. In essence, most everything we know or we think we know about pitch counts is research largely done at the major league level. Right. Because that's the one area where we have a whole lot of data. You know, we have years of data. This is how many pitches, all that. You even go to the minor league level, and you have it at the AAA level. You go down to low A, and it is extremely hit or miss as far as public data. Now, if you tell me that every team knows how many pitch that their pitchers throw, absolutely. But if you ask me, okay, do you know how many pitches, if you're the Nationals, do you know how many pitches that the Padres pitchers in low A throw? You probably don't. Right. Because that data is just not there. You go to the college level, and it gets more difficult. Um, you can piece some together, but there's going to be holes in your, your info. You go to the high school and the showcase level and throw out the, you know, you, you, it just doesn't exist. It does not exist. And so, but what my, my, the 190 whatever pitches, my question with something like that is, we, we've kind of, and I'm not defending that either. That's bad. I, that's bad. There's no... But but I do have the question. Okay, it was a pitcher at a 1A school. Is I guess my question is, is and I don't know the answer to this, is this a, a promising junior who has a college career ahead of him? Yeah, or, is it, or is it a senior who's pitching potentially his last game and will never pitch again. Because I'll use, I'll use the example I like to use for this, JJ. Is in 2009, we had the Austin Wood thing in the Texas-Boston College game. So first of all, this game was the longest playoff game in NCAA Division I history. So it's 25 innings. So it's an exceptional happening. It is the exception. It's the definition of that word. It was an exception. It was a great game. For everybody who's there, it was this battle of wills. Third of all, get all this attention on Austin Wood. And Austin went through 181 pitches, and that was bad. And Keith Law of ESPN spearheaded the Austin Wood was abused. Ali Guido should be fired. He wasn't the only person who wrote it, but he wrote it. You know, kudos to Keith. He's never shy about his opinions, and he puts his name with it, and everyone knows where to find him. So I disagreed with that take at the time. I talked about this with Keith the next year at Tournament of Stars. And, um, you know, the guy threw 181 pitches, and there's nothing 
good about that from a workload perspective. Especially because he was he was a reliever. <laughs> he was a reliever. Number one, although he'd started he started, yeah, career, he was stretched out. Still, yeah. the point is, no one's prepared yeah. to throw 181 pitches. Right. You know, no one in this country. No. You know, let's, <laughs> let's correct that. No one in this country is prepared to throw 181. Levon pitches. Hernandez is somewhere around like I may be 45, but hey, I'm still here. prepped. I can do it right now. No one born in this country. I'm, we're narrowing down. Few people are prepared to throw 181 yeah. pitches. But I think what a lot of the critics of these things never take into account is. I always believe with Austin Wood. So there's two parts of this. Number one, I always believe Austin Wood. It mattered more for Austin Wood to pitch in the College World Series with the Texas Longhorns, which he did in that team lineup in the College World Series championship finals and lost to LSU. But he almost, with that act of heroism, basically, which is one way you can view it, he almost won a national championship for his team. He was a college senior, and he was a fifth-round pitch. He was a prospect, but he was not an elite prospect. And in my mind, I've said this many times, Austin Wood dreamt of, when he dreamed about playing baseball, he dreamed of doing it in burnt orange and white. He didn't dream of doing it in a Pittsburgh Pirates uniform, not to mention a state college spikes uniform or whoever their farm teams were at that time. So I don't feel like that's ever taken into account of. I'm not talking about with this specific pitcher, but I feel the real issue was that actually this column that I wrote after that, which was that Mike Belfiore was a supplemental first-round pick, and he was a dude, the pitcher for Boston College. He threw 129 pitches in that game. His career high to that point was 85, so he was extended well beyond it. He was a prospect. No, by the way, when he got done pitching, he got put in left field. He joked about having to Mayna Ramirez the ball back into the infield. That was the problem. That was the bigger problem. It's easy to point to Austin Wood, but I do think it's different. All these guys are not future pros. And so the, what they do as an amateur cannot only be seen through the prism of their future big league earning potential because that's a small, small I, fraction I, of the I, population. I will, I will, I actually was talking about this with someone. And again, we, we're not saying guys should go out and throw 100, you know, but in Austin Wood's case, financially, I, again, and I don't think this, he wasn't thinking of this when he was on the mound, but financially, for his long-term financial success, he may have made more money by throwing that and doing that heroic, you know, basically in being a, a hero calculate, for Longhorn fans. Calculate the amount of beer that he will not have to buy no, the rest of his life. But I don't know what his career, but if you want to be, I, I know guys. I you know, hurt his career and it hurt Belfiore's. No, Belfiore got hurt as a pro. Wood's already been released. Right. But what I'm saying is, is I don't know what his long-term career plans are, but if he wants to be an insurance agent or something like that in Texas. Yeah. You, you get in the door. I, I know. I mean, I know stories like this. David Green, who was the quarterback at University of Georgia, I'm a University of Georgia grad. He's an insurance agent now. I'm sure he does quite fine. He was the His, big left-handed quarterback, right? Yeah, he he was he was a quarterback who had a really good SEC career and was a backup for a couple of years in the NFL. David Green's long-term career is basically a lot. I hate. Yeah, he may be a great insurance agent, but really. What gets them in the door, like, there are many a houses around, you know, around Athens and all, where if you're David Green, you, they will, you will make that sale because, like, David Green sells me my insurance. That's right. And, again, that's a minor thing. And, but, again, I'll go back to the 192. If I'm a high school senior and this is my last game, I'm, I'm happy. I mean, it sounds, it sounds silly, and maybe we shouldn't. Maybe it's big. No. I, maybe I'm wrong on this. It's not my kid, so, may, you know, I'm. I'd be happy to leave my arm out there for my last game in a you know in a playoff type situation to try to win something and like that's right to try to win something. That's, I knew that's I knew when I was covering high schools, 
there were two guys on a basketball team, two seniors on a basketball team I covered, who both, both had torn their ACLs. They were seniors. Those things have value. And they said, you know what? This is it. There were six foot one, six foot two seniors. You know, they weren't, they right. weren't, they didn't have basketball scholarship down the road. They said, you can have the surgery now. You can have it later. You're not going to pop it worse. Right. We can brace it up and you can try to gut through the pain. And they're like, you know what? This is our last year. Let's do that. Again, that's not saying, hey, all these guys should be locked. But we do have to look at the perspective of there's a difference between the, the pro perspective rightfully is, is that uh, the pro scout argument, the amateur scout argument to a guy who's in high school deciding to go college or pro, his argument he can make is, look, if you come sign with me, we are going to do, there is not going to be a situation from age 18 to 21, 22, at least, where in any way, anything of winning right now is going to take precedence over what we see as the best for your long-term future. Right. Now, that shifts. You get to the big leagues. No one decries that Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling pretty much in, you know, for the Diamondbacks in, was it 01? Yeah, in 01. They were, they were putting, they were putting, right, but... No one would, everyone kind of understands, okay, they may have been putting their long-term health on the line to win a title there, but at that age, it's like, okay, is it worth us doing that? Well, absolutely. I understand there's a, there's a, if you're, there's a sliding scale on that. That's the argument they can make. The college coach can make the argument, you come to us and the win, the games actually do mean something. Right. That if you win a, if you win an only. put it very well the other day, JJ, you just said like. The guys in the minor leagues don't know how to make a pitch when they have to make a pitch because they're out after 75 pitches. They're out after 80 pitches. They're out after 90 pitches. I've learned how to make a pitch on that 120th pitch when I need to make a pitch. And guess what? You need to do that when you're in the big leagues. And Carlos Luran says, I've learned how to do that. And he's learned it against different competition, but I respect that. Now, that said, I do think it'll be better. I think it'll be, I do think long term, JJ. High school pitchers should not be allowed to throw 194 pitches. No, I think there should be. At the high school level, I think there should be rules. And I don't think Austin Wood should have been allowed to throw 181 pitches. I do think the bottom line is that push comes to shove. Major League Baseball needs to be more involved in amateur sports in baseball. And one of the things that we've talked about with this injury trend is, as usual, MLB points the finger at anything but itself. That is the that is what major league teams do. That's what executives do. That's what scouts do. They always point the finger at amateur baseball. In this case, not without merit, because 194 pitches really is a defensive ball that we just spent a few minutes defending it. I think we've spent a few minutes explaining it. And just it's not. It's, I, we're, we're not defending it. We're just saying it's not as black and white. In that, exactly. like, I want I want perspective on all of these. Respect the fact that these guys are competitors and that what they're competing for matters to them. That is again, that's all and, and and the thing about it is, is that again, this scale to me, the lower, the younger the pitcher, the more you need hard and fast rules. Like Jace Fry for Oregon State, the fact that he threw 288. Well, what's the disputed amount of pitches between 259 and 288 pitches in a 10-day span at age 12 in a little league there's regional? No, there's no. There, there's zero. That's black and white. That's black and white. There's zero justification for that, except for the fact that they did pitch in the little league World Series. But, and that, you know, it, but that, the, the dad but, or the coach needs to be in there like, come on. But again, the, to me, the sliding, oh, yeah. my, my personal opinion on that is the sliding scale is, is as a 12-year-old, 
you have no clue whether you are basically derailing a right. future big league career. Even at age 18, we have some idea right. of, okay, you know, again, does the guy throw 90? He, I, maybe, again, maybe I'm making too much justification. Does the guy throw 90 or he throws 75? If right. he throws 75, okay. Hey, if he's submarine and if he's David Berg, pitch him every day. Right. Well, I'm not saying even that he, you're not risking an injury. What I'm saying is, is then it does become a little bit more of, okay, well, what are we, what injury are we risking? I have a friend of mine on my softball team who was a baseball player, you know, as long as he could. He blew out his arm. He had one throw in his arm. You know, he was Carlos Quentin. He was, had one throw in his arm in softball. But you know Carlos what? Carlos Quentin, 2003, for the context for people who don't Yeah, Yeah, it's sad. Our shorthand is, is pretty insane. Carlos like, Quentin, 2003, in the Cobble Series, he had one good throw in him per game. And when he had used that throw up, Jed Lowry was the deepest cutoff guy you ever saw, and, and Sam Fold sprinted right field, and well, Carlos underhand the ball. Well, Brennan McDonald on my softball team, he listens, I think, to the podcast, so I'll give him the shout-out. <laughs> um, he was the same way. He had one throw from the outfield every game, and after that, he would literally, I would run out, and he would just kind of give me the ball, and I would throw it. <laughs> that was fine, because you know what? If you asked him, yeah, okay, I, my arm, I blew it out. His baseball career was done right. at that point, and it didn't affect him in any other part of his day. Exactly. So he's like, no, I'll take that trait. And again, we're not... It's just saying there, there is some more gray. It's not black and white. But, but I, do think, I do think it would be good, JJ, for Major League Baseball to involve itself at the amateur level. First off, there's a lot of talk about travel ball. I mean, JJ, which do is, you think Major League Baseball could enforce a ban, not a ban, but a, ban, a restriction on the 30 clubs to say, hey, don't go... To any showcases in the months of October, November, December, January, because we want to. Well, you, I don't think you can say January. But you can say October, November, December. We're going to have a three-month closed period for professional team scouting because we want to stop helping fund these showcases that make money by having these year-round events for pitchers. That is going that that cumulatively may be very well intentioned. But cumulatively, we now have a year-round calendar, and we feel that that's affecting the health of our pitchers long-term. Do you think Major League Baseball could enforce something like that with its 30 clubs? Oh, sure. But like, I mean, I don't know if that would have to be collectively bargained or not, but, I mean, if you said, could Major League Baseball do it? You think, I, you think I, I mean, they would say, hey, you know, there's a showcase in October. Right? Say, you know, just, uh, just picking out one showcase. Say, say that uh, Perfect Game did not move. It's a showcase in Jupiter which is at the end of October. Say they didn't react to that by moving that showcase into September. Say they still had it in October. And if you're a major league club, are you going to go in there and break that ban, pay whatever fine it might be uh, if there are penalties? Uh, there probably wouldn't be any penalties. Man. How would you penalize a club that broke that? How would you enforce that ban? Well, and would clubs just try to mutually say, we're not going to do this because we want the long-term health of, the, of, of our arms? Or would you try to get that advantage by going in and scouting those players at that time? I guess my question on that would be, how much advantage are you actually getting? I agree. You I know, I, but, but, but I do think... I'm with you. But I think on this, I think that what's going to happen with this is, is we are going to see... Again, on the showcase circuit and all, this is all... The stuff that's coming up about year-round pitching and all, that's the part of the Dr. Andrews and Dr. Fleissig and all. That's the part of the approach... Eric uh, Cressy and all that, that's new. I don't think, 
as an uh, as an as an to what's happening. But I'm saying as an industry, I don't think that the industry has had a chance. You know, changes happen slowly. My and maybe I I put too much out that there's going to be you know the, of the good of, of what's going to happen. But my expectation is is that. I think that that's going to happen organically. I think that organically what's going to end up happening is that there's going to largely, not entirely, but there's largely going to become essentially a three to four month gap in the schedule because we have all these experts coming out and saying, you need this layoff. You need- I really don't see that happening because there is a large profit motive that is behind but, these showcases. But no, but here's the thing. You if you're a pitcher and you said, okay, your choices are your you know I'll, If the top yeah. pitchers don't go, JD, then this is another opportunity for the pitchers a level below them to get exposure, to pitch in front of scouts, try to chase a college scholarship. I feel like someone some authority on top. The market is driving this. That's another well, reason why I don't believe in the market. But the market is what's driving this. And the market is not acting in the best interest of pitcher's health. So something else is going to have to act in the best interest of pitcher health. And it's not going to be, again, I'm taking on perfect game. It's not going to be the group that's building a multi-million dollar complex in northwest of Atlanta. Is it? Because they're motivated to have events at that complex. And that is their right. It's well within their rights. And their job is to make money, not to look out for the health of young pitchers in baseball really right now no one has that job and no one's taking that job i would say that that's a job that major league baseball whoever the next commissioner is after bud selig that would be in my mind job number two for that commissioner job number one for that commissioner is to make more money for the owners because that if you don't do that you gone so bud selig has grown this from a well, one or two billion dollar revenue industry to an eight billion dollar revenue industry, and so he's going to be universally lauded for doing a great job. But to me, the next commissioner, that would be a proactive thing for a commissioner of baseball to do would be to try to take a holistic approach to quote unquote the game, capital G, and that would be one way to do that. In my mind, it is for Major League Baseball to try to get much more active in the amateur side of the game. And there are two ways that I think we can do that. Number one is trying to work with the NCAA to bring some sanity to college baseball schedule, which would be either maybe trying to push that back a little bit, if that's possible. Um, Work with college baseball on having the draft not come during the college baseball season so you can maybe move the draft back in some way so that you could also evaluate college players in some kind of, whether you want to call it a showcase, whether you want to call it a combine. I feel like Major League Baseball, I've talked to a lot of scouting directors over the last year who really want some kind of combine, some kind of medical combine, some kind of evaluation. You take your 200 top prospects, you're taking drug tests, vision tests for hitters, just basic physicals, interviews, absolutely. Well, you do that in the summer when these kids are not in school. And I think if Major League Baseball was in charge of these showcases, and if to really to be a top prospect, to be considered one of the top two, quote unquote 200 guys, you had to go to a Major League Baseball combine. I feel like that's something Major League and, Baseball should try to work toward. I don't. I, and know, I, think, I don't go into that knowing that's easy. That's something they should work toward and really take control, take the lead on that kind of thing, as opposed to leaving it 
to outside sources. I think you look at the NBA, that's been left, and college basketball, they've left it. They don't have any control over it, and that genie's out of that bottle for them, and the AAU tra uh, travel basketball industry controls amateur basketball. And that has been to the negative effect of the NBA. I think MLB wants to avoid that example. I, I think it's much more possible in the upcoming few years than it ever would have been before. Right. From the standpoint that the NCAA as we know it, I mean, before the real, the problem that we had before is just that, okay, if you want to do the top 200 prospects, you want to do high school and college, you couldn't do it because they'd all have to pay their own way. And if they didn't, they would lose eligibility. Right. That may be going away. They may actually, we may actually be to a reasonable area where you say, hey, there's nothing that affects your ability to play for a college, you know, by being paid, your travel being paid to a combine right. to work, to talk to teams. That doesn't in any way besmirch or hinder your ability to play for UCLA or Texas right. or LSU. Which that's been the insanity that we've been dealing with for a long, long time. No doubt. The same way that, but they didn't, you know, something that never applied to me because I didn't participate in athletics. I could work any job I wanted in college. Right. You know, it wasn't something where, oh, I can't go there. It'll ruin my ability to go to my J school class next week. <laughs> you know, nothing like that. But you so that, that much of a ringer in a softball team. You know, no, no, definitely not. <laughs> but but that's that could change, and but. I think with all this, one thing I do want to point out for this, we know we talk about year round and all that. I think that when we talk about why this all this huge uptick of injuries, I think that's a factor. Yep. I think though, it's not the only factor, sir. But I, no, I think in anyone searching for the factor, there is no the factor. I, I had one. There's no I, magic. I had one this. front office uh, uh, personnel. Uh, one guy put it to me this week. He said. I'm at the point where I'm almost trying to look at the healthy guys and what's common about them because there's nothing common about all these different injuries. I can't, you, you can't find. If Brandon Beachy and Chris Medlin were not travel ball guys, they were not guys who pitched a ton year round. Chris Medlin was a junior college shortstop. Brandon Beachy was an NAIA third baseman. So yeah, it's it, you. There are certainly a lot of outliers there. But there's nothing that you can. I think the one thing that you can throw a blanket over this, and it's not entirely true on this even, but the largest largest blanket you can throw over this is that pitchers throw harder now. Yep. If you go back, the late the best data we have goes back to about 2000. Good data, not the best, but good data goes back to 2002. 2002 to present, the average fastball in the big leagues has gone up about a mile to about a mile and a half an hour. Okay. The average slider has gone up about a mile and a half an hour. The average change, every pitch pretty much has has gained a tick. Okay, there's a lot more we saw. We it was in the last issue. We wrote a story about how there are I think it's 26 got high school pitchers from this class who've thrown 95 or above going into the draft. Okay, that doesn't mean they sit there, right. but we have that many guys. If they you, flashed it. They've, they've tickled it. They've touched it. If you rewound that clock 10 years ago, and I know the guns are a little better and they may add a mile an hour, if you went back 10 years ago, you'd probably be talking about, in a draft any year, you'd be talking about three or four. Guys are throwing harder. Doctor after doctor will point out to you, you can strengthen your muscles. That's one of the reasons they're throwing harder. Guys are better trained. They have a stronger core, all that. They have stronger shoulders. They've done all these things 
to throw. And so they throw harder. They've trained for the possibility that they will be able to throw harder. And for many they, of them, it's come to fruition. And you can, tra- you can strengthen the muscles to a small extent. You can dunge are a little better and they may add a mile an hour. If you went back 10 years ago, you'd probably be talking about, in a draft any year, you'd be talking about three or four. Guys are throwing harder. Doctor after doctor will point out to you, you can strengthen your muscles. That's one of the reasons they're throwing harder. Guys are better trained. They have a stronger core, all that. They have stronger shoulders. They've done all these things to throw. And so they throw harder. They've trained for the possibility that they will be able to throw harder. And for many of them, it's come to fruition. And you can can strengthen the muscles. To a small extent, you can strengthen a tendon. There is absolutely, positively nothing you can do to strengthen a ligament. There's no exercise. There's nothing you can do. And so what we're doing is, is the harder you throw, the more strain you put on ligaments. Now, I know we are still really... I've seen one study out there that looked at the guys who threw 100 miles an hour and said, hey, their TJ rate is about the same as, the, as everyone else. I think we still have to study that more. There's an awful lot of doctors and trainers I've talked to who their supposition, Dr. Andrews puts it at, he says that at 85 miles an hour, an 18-year-old, you run into, you're, in the, you're in the red zone. You're in the danger zone that this could cause a problem. Well, that means everyone who, pretty much every pitcher who will be drafted in June out of high school is in the danger zone. Because Sorry. if you're not throwing, you yeah, zone Lana, <laughs> but if you're throwing, if you're not throwing 85, you're not getting drafted. Right. There's no such thing as an 18-year-old getting drafted throwing hard, 80. You're hardly getting a Division One scholarship. Right. So, like that. so, no, you absolutely. So, if you're in that red zone, I'll say, if you're in that red zone, you're also in the green zone. That's where you start getting paid and you and, start getting scholarship money. And the thing about it is, is that if if I'm an agent, if I'm a coach, if I'm a player, even if you say, you know what, you're throwing 98, there's a decent chance that you may blow out your elbow at some point. The second thing I'd follow that, that up with is keep doing what you're doing. Right. You know why? Because if you want to succeed at what you do, I know we have a question we're going to answer here. And the one of the que- suppositions of the question is, is that guys these days think that throwing hard is going to make you a better pitcher. Well, you know what? Because they're right. The and you can pull that. out you can pull out any example you want. But the reality of it is is that, yes, Greg Maddox was a great pitcher and he didn't throw all that hard for the majority of his success. I'll tell you right now, the majority, you can look at it any year. The harder you throw, the higher likelihood is you have a success. Period. No, I mean, that's not even... It's not debatable. I, I can tell you right now, we get this question. I've, we've gotten this question. I've been at, you've been at BA longer. I've been at BA for 12 years now. Long 12 years Every year we get questions on guys. You got this right-hander who throws 88 to 90, or you got this lefty who throws 86 to 88, who's putting up great numbers in the minor leagues. I mean, you're just saying over 85 is in the red zone. Here's Doug Mapson's report on Greg Maddox, May 26, 1984. He throws 86, 89 consistently with very good movement. And he, and, and by the way, he was 91, 92 at a, you know, when he was, was a yeah, high as, a, and as a high school senior. So he's in the red zone, right? <laughs> he was in the red zone. But, How about this? I don't think I've seen a 10 curveball, but several pitches came about as close as you're ever going to get. So at that time, he wasn't even showing a feel for spin. Uh, 
But then it says he has a big league CB. I think that must be changeup right now. He needs to be a little more consistent. So, uh, let's say it's curveball. He's doing a 10 on the 2 to 8 on the positive side. He's saying yeah, it's not. A, I don't know. That's under weaknesses. Oh, weaknesses. Right? Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, we have CB and CB. We need to go back and edit our yeah. story from 1996. See what we got wrong there. But but my point is is that we get this question every year. Hey, you're you know you're you're underrating this guy because he doesn't throw hard. You know he doesn't have an average fastball, but he really knows how to locate. You can't find the amount of guys that you can find with a below average fastball when they reach the majors with long term success. I I'll give you every one of those, and you know what? Because for every guy you get right, I you I'll promise you, you I can give you ten more that you got that you missed on because right. if you. No one can succeed at the big league level by saying our inefficiency is that we are going to find guys who really know how to pitch with below average fastballs as young players. It doesn't work. The Twins have tried that. It doesn't work. (laughs) They also had Joe Maurer. It worked to an extent, but it did not work for a World Series championship for them, and that's the goal. And even their guys, when we go through their guys, the guys they had coming up had at least, in most cases, average fast. I mean, who are the guys... Slowy was slowy was the, more average fastballs as opposed to below average. But right. Slowy Blackburn, um, but Blackburn had a Blackburn was ninety would touch ninety five when he came up. Yeah, but it was mostly a ninety ninety one sinker baller. Um, they just seemed like they had so many guys in that of that ilk at that time. Brian Dunsing, well, uh, you know, Glenn Perkins threw harder as a reliever and he's stuck around as but, a closer. But like, Kyle Waldrop, and we hard. see and we see guys. Every year we'll see guys with below average to tick below average fastballs come up and have some success early on. Mike Fires with the Brewers a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, good example. And you could go, wow, you know, did you guys miss on him? He's back in AAA. He's having a good year in AAA. But the, the margin of error if you do not have an average to above average fastball is very small. I mean, like Dylan G. I think of Dylan G as a guy who doesn't throw terribly hard. Mm-hmm. He's sitting around 90 with most fastballs. A decent amount that are below. But Dylan G to me is a... Dylan G, and again, Dylan G... back of the rotation. You, you, can find some, you can find some four and fives. Yeah. You know, that's... And he's a... You know, he more is... Threes. All more threes, though. He's not a big four... He's not too many four or fives on here. Just no, 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 no. I'm saying you can find a lot of four and five starters. Oh, may, you may be able to find a four and five starter. You... But again, v- Velo is part of the game, and Velo may in some ways lead in some ways to elbow injuries. Now, the good news away. about this... That's not going away. The good news about this is, is and we'll talk about this, there's, you know, we'll have stories come out there and talk about this more. I think you can ask a very fair question about whether the pro approach, so when it comes counts. to 18, 19, and 20-year-olds, if we're actually seeing any... any the pro approach of, at the major league level, I think we have seen a definite benefit to the ending of the days of Nolan Ryan going out there and throwing 170 plus pitches and doing it again four days later. Nolan Ryan could handle that. A whole lot of guys couldn't. Exactly. For every Ryan that we remember doing it, or Catfish Hunter, or whoever, there were 10 guys. Frank Tanana was on that same staff with Nolan Ryan, and Frank Tanana's arm couldn't. Right. You know, and That's he threw right. really hard, and then he came back and he threw really soft. That's right. You know, for, there are very few guys who can handle that. That's been good. What I think is a fair question about whether or we're seeing a benefit is, is at the major league level, what that is, is, okay, we're not going to let you throw 130 
almost ever. We're not going to let you tick past 120 that often. 100 to 110 is the sweet spot on a normal start. Yeah. That's what we're. That's where we are as an. In, that's where the baseball is as an industry as far as major leaguers. The minor league side, we've taken that and we've gone. Okay, your first year, a lot of guys. It's we're going to let you go 75, and we'll, we'll eventually let you up to 90. You know, we'll we'll let you throw five innings. You're not going to throw more than five. They count how many times you get up and down. Right. All, all these things. Okay, the college approach, because colleges are trying to win. Just another example. We're here at Durham in AAA, and we see it year in and year out with an organization, the Rays, that has been as successful as anyone in the last decade at developing homegrown pitching. I know right now Hellickson, Cobb, and Matt Moore are all hurt. But the Rays are very consistent. They draft pitchers. They never send high school pitchers to full season ball Mm -hmm. in their first full year. They send them to extended and then short season. Maybe if you're a college guy, you can go. But if you're a high school guy, like Moore, like Cobb, like Ellison, you went to rookie like ball. Rary, then you like... went to New York Penn League. And then your third year, you went to full season ball. They do the same thing with most of their Latin American pitchers. And then they get to AAA. And I listen to a lot of the broadcasts. I've been part of that broadcast team. I've talked to Charlie Montoya, who's been in that organization a long time. You know, 105 is about the max. Mm-hmm. And they use their bullpen every game. They expect to use two relievers basically every game. When they have to more. Use, when they have to use more, it is a real delicate balance. A lot of times those relievers, if they don't have a closer per se, because if Kirby Yates, for example, is closing in Durham, and he gets called up to Tampa, and he goes into the fifth inning of a game, he better be ready to get extended. Mm-hmm. He can't just be a one-inning guy in Durham. So all their pitchers in AAA fill all these different roles. They have to be prepared for every role. So it's a really difficult thing to manage a minor league bullpen, almost more so than a major league bullpen, J.J., because there's so many restrictions on those pitch counts, and there's very, very little flexibility with the roles those guys can play. Very little for the minor league manager. But so at the minor league level, what the approach that has been done is that, okay, we're going to really work on keeping your innings down, especially when you're 18, 19. It's just very challenging we're, to do when you have uh, baseball, a very unpredictable sport. You're going to do that. We're going to keep your pitch counts very low. And by very low, I mean you're going to, in year two, year three, we will ramp you up to where you are allowed to tickle 100. And this has been the case, Sometimes. And this has been the case for... In the industry, this has been the industry norm, it feels like, for about a decade. I would say I would say you could go back if you go back to two thousand nine, two thousand ten, it was blanket. Blanket. I would say I would say two thousand five, two thousand six, there were te- there were a lot of teams that did it, but I would say that at that level, I cannot promise you that it was a hundred percent consistency. Yeah, I mean just I just remember this, but the high profile cases that stick out to me are okay, a guy like Phil Hughes, who got the double A, the Yankees were good in 06. Phil Hughes was dealing. He was never allowed to go over five innings mm-hmm. by the end of that year. And he like had five no-hit innings with like 55 pitches out. You know, mm-hmm. I think I'm on the extreme low end of what his pitch count was. But he had extremely low pitch count. So you can be that efficient. Hey, in the draft this year, Kyle Freeland just threw a 69-pitch, seven-inning complete game today. I mean, so you can be that efficient. But, but it's rare. Usually... You had more cases like Four innings, five. on these 75 pitch counts, and he couldn't get through five innings. He couldn't mm-hmm. get through four and change. Or Dylan Bundy 
who was the best pitcher in that class on the high school side. And the first, he was in the first month of the season, he was allowed to go three innings, no more. That's it. I mean, so you have and real limitations so, these guys. So you have this. On the college side, it's been a different approach. They're trying to win. As, as the story was going to say, no minor league manager, no minor league manager success of being long-term is, is, wow, you win every year. Hey, remember um, uh, Eric Bedard coming up. Uh, Will Lingo in the next room wrote this story. He might burst in. But Eric Bedard uh, was going for a, a no-hitter in double-A, and his, uh, his manager and pitching coach let him do it. They burst past what the Orioles' limits were for pitch limits at that time. He finished the no-hitter, threw like 120-some pitches, got hurt, had Tommy John. Those guys, they gone. You know? I mean, like right. That, that, and that was like when Eric Bedard was young. So this was like 10, 11, 12 years ago. So this is, the industry was trending that way a decade ago. Mm-hmm. The college, decade at the ago. college level, so at the minor league level, you, your success, your long-term livelihood depends on developing players. And winning is a nice little secondary bonus. But if you keep producing, moving guys up to be big quality big leaguers, and you win 45% of your games every year, you're still going to have a job. Yeah. You might end up being a field coordinator or a pitching coordinator, but you're going to have a job. They prefer you to figure out a way to win right. with all these limitations. But that is not the not top priority. At the college level, winning is going to determine your long-term livelihood. You can produce first-round picks every year. If you don't win, you're going to be fired. And let me tell you, the livelihood of a college coach is vastly superior to that of a yes. minor league coach or manager. And that's a fact, Jack. Mm-hmm. And that's why – so the, it's another – I'm going on a tangent. Stop me if, I, if you've heard this one before. The caliber of college baseball coach has gotten better and I think has improved at a greater rate than the quality of minor league coach or manager – because the money is better in the college game. And if you can be a coach who both develops players and wins, you're going to get paid in college baseball. Kevin O'Sullivan at Florida is a great example. And Kevin O'Sullivan is making around a half million dollars as the head baseball coach at the University of Florida. And, there is, and there's no one not in the big leagues who's a coach who's making half a million dollars. There's no minor league manager. Farm directors, you know, the depots of the world, guys who are in charge of these departments, who are making a half million dollars. And so what is he able to do? He's able to go out and hire two pro scouts uh, to go be his assistant coaches. And that happens more and more in college baseball. It just happened at the University of Cincinnati. Took an amateur scout from around here, Adam Barasa, hired him to be a recruiting coordinator. And Adam Barasa, I'm sure, is making more money and has a better quality of life being an assistant baseball coach at the University of Cincinnati. So this is the trend. The money's better at the college level, especially at the bigger schools. So they're getting... Better and better personnel to coach. But, but Alan so, Dunn, another great example of a guy who was pro ball with the Cubs, now LSU's pitching coach. But if Alan Dunn doesn't win, he doesn't help so, LSU win, he will lose that job. So their approach is different. They're also on a seven-day rotation, as we talked about. They're not on a five-day. They're, they're pitching every seven days. The reality of it is, is that because of that, now somewhat just because of the nature of how the game works, you do have a little bit of the same approach in that freshmen often throw less pitches because a lot of times they have less trust. So unless you are excellent, like if you go back, when I was going through Kevin Gossman's pitch totals, you keep seeing Aaron Nola's name pop up because they you know, Gossman would leave the game and, oh, here here comes Nola. Yeah, Nola was a uh, high-leverage freshman 
who was getting comped at that time to a mix of Jeremy Hellickson, LSU signee, and Lewis Coleman, LSU uh, hero now, in 2009. Now Kansas City Royal Reliever. Yeah. Absolutely. But so what you were seeing, you know, so you, so you do have somewhat, in, case, in most cases, of guys as freshmen, they have a lower workload, and then they ramp up as sophomores. And as juniors, they're the Friday starter. Well, the Friday starter... For most of the past five years, and let's be honest, I'm trying to research this, you go past 2010 and the data gets really hard to find. If you can find me Steven Strasburg's pitch counts by game for his junior year, please let us know because I've been working on it and I haven't found it. John Manuel of BaseballAmerica.com. But, um, you know, and it's not just him. You go to 2009, it gets real hard to find him. But what we're seeing, though, is, is that at the college level, and for the majority of the past five years, your ace will throw 100 to 115 pitches after the first three or four starts of the year, most every time out, 100 to 115. And most guys, for a key game or two, they'll go to 120. You might see him go to 130. And that's pretty much, with a few exceptions, that's been, if you say 2010 to 13, look at the first round picks, that's been across the board. Now, Trevor Bauer goes into a separate category of his own. Trevor Bauer at UCLA threw more pitches, had a heavier workload on a seven-day schedule, let me say. But on a seven-day schedule, he had a heavier workload than any pitcher in the U.S. prominent pitcher. I'm not saying there's not some D2 guy. Or any ball. Oh, but, hey, well, Hayden Simpson, J.J., one of the great missteps in the draft the, I, I always contend that the once a week 130 pitches doesn't bother me as much as the 110 pitches on a Friday, and then you come back on a Tuesday, and then you come back on a next week. And Hayden Simpson was the big example of that, did it in a regional, started on a Friday, came back on a Monday, two days rest. That's, or, of course, the prominent example we saw last year with Kent Emanuel, which I've said on the college podcast a million times. We don't know if Kent Emanuel got hurt because he hasn't broken down yet, he hasn't been cut on. He's pitching well in pro ball this year. But Ken Emanuel on short rest was extremely ineffective. Most of these guys on short rest in college baseball are extremely ineffective, which is one of the biggest reasons why you shouldn't bring a guy back on short rest. We will watch that this year. We have two prominent examples I tweeted about last night at the front of the first round this year. Carlos Rodon went 107 pitches, I believe it was, last Friday with an hour and 15-minute rain delay stuck in the middle of that start. He will not be pushed up. The schedules move up at this time of year because you're preparing for a league conference tournament, which is another reason why conference tournaments should be abolished. There, yeah, that really should be the thing. Just if you wanted to say, like, get them out. There, there's and no I, purpose in that. I hate, I hate saying that in a way because the last two years, two of my favorite baseball memories were these NC State and North Carolina NCAA tournament, ACC tournament games, Rodon against the world. They've both been otherworldly games. They were two of the funnest games I've ever been to. And, but that being uh, but, said, uh, but that being said, big picture, probably shouldn't have those games. But uh, uh, two two things here: Rodon will not go on shorter rest this week. He, even though they have a Thursday night game, NC State will use their Saturday tandem from last week, the game I did. Logan Jernigan threw five innings. Brad Stone threw four. They're going to use those guys tonight in the Thursday game. Rodon will go on his usual rest on Friday. Contrast that with Evansville, who I already mentioned. Kyle Freeland coming off a seven-inning, 69-pitch shutout, will pitch on Thursday at Missouri State, and there is every likelihood that he will pitch on Tuesday in the first game 
of the Missouri Valley Conference Tournament, J.J., and that, to me, is in preparation for him being available for the championship game of the Missouri Valley Conference Tournament if needed, if, Missouri, if Evansville thinks they need to win the conference tournament to get into NCAA regionals. Now, that is That's where more we start getting into problematic territory because there's some people who think that this guy has uh, uh, a reliever delivery, as way it's been put, which there's some recall at the end. I get it. I don't see how you can say this guy has a reliever's delivery when he's throwing about 100 innings and has seven walks. He repeats. He repeats. The evidence is in the numbers. He does it, and he repeats. Does he do it as easy as, say, as Sean Newcomb? Does he do it as easy as some other pitchers do it? No. But he doesn't do it hard either. There's that little bit of recoil at the end, though. And one of the things you found, J.J., is that really it's just like the higher pitch count, the lower pitch counts in pro ball have not stopped elbow injuries. They have. There's data not complete data, but there's evidence, I should say, that it has helped with shoulder injuries. Right. That's the thing is, is if you said, if you're looking for the bright news of the the dark era of Tommy John's that we were under, is that shoulder injuries, we're not seeing shoulder injury after shoulder injury. If you wanted, my, I mean, if you wanted to put a supposition out there, it would be that by reducing pitchers pitching fatigued, more than saving elbows, because as as people put it, if if pitch counts is supposed to save elbows, we're not doing that. Either I mean, we, there's only two answers you can give. One is is that it's not doing it, or two is is that any benefit we're getting from the pitch counts of saving elbows, there are other factors that are overwhelming them, and that point. and that may be true. I mean, we get we don't know that may be true, but but when it comes to shoulders, we do not have the epic run I, I'll i throw it out there it's a very Socratic thing right now I think I've given this credit to, to my fellow uh, Greek uh, Aristotle but I believe it was Socrates who said all we know is that we don't know or all I know is I know nothing with regard to these injuries we don't know but who's the last who is the last again I'm putting you on the spot and I'm trying to put myself on the spot too the last top end pitching prospect whose career was derailed a la Ryan Anderson by shoulder problems. You know, I mean, I'm thinking Chris Gruler. Chris Gruler. Didn't, didn't shoulder problems also happen with Ty Howington? Uh, Ty Howington. Well, yeah, the Reds were in The Reds. Players. Bobby Basham, I think, could be thrown into that. Bobby Basham's scouting now, so maybe Bobby could let us know um, if but, he sees a difference. But, I mean, it hey, used uh, to. Tim Stauffer. I mean, he, he recovered. Danny Holson is the only. Danny Holson's the guy we don't know yet, but Danny Holson may be. It's Danny a Holson. It's a much smaller. Subset of shoulder. The shoulder subset is smaller than the elbows subset, and that's good because it's a lot harder to survive the shoulder injury than it is. The good news about this is, is it is crushingly bad news to hear that Jeff Hoffman and Eric Fetty are going to have to have TJ. See, I would say it's bad news. I wouldn't say it's crushing, right, but because the industry seems to think. I just talked to a guy this morning. He said, "You know." I think that the Tommy John surgery is not the red flag it used to be. I actually think that the red flag is coming back up on that because now we're basically seeing that if you have Tommy John once, you're more likely to need it again. Maybe in seven to eight years, there might be a ticking clock on that. Or if you're a Braves pitcher, in two years or immediately thereafter, which is very sad. I'm not saying that with any mirth. But, but no. But what I'm saying it is sad though because I would want I want same with Jose Fernandez. I okay. I'm just. Like everyone in baseball, if you love baseball, you love Jose Fernandez. The fact that Jose Fernandez, we're Unless not. You're Brian McCann. But the the fact that we're not going to get to watch him, it looks like for another year. And 
when he comes back... Couldn't he maybe play first base for the Marlins? But when he comes back, we may not see the same... We t- Go back in our archives. we got every one of them archived. Look back at our podcast we did right after Steven Strasburg's first big league start. I talked about it in that podcast. Enjoy this as much as you can because... We may have seen Steven Strasburg in a way that we won't see him before long. I mean, and that and Steven Strasburg's great still. But the difference, JJ, is that today, uh, Jose Fernandez and Steven Strasburg, maybe that was fleeting, but they'll still be around and they'll still be good. And they will no. time to time dazzle us. Maybe they won't be. Maybe we haven't seen Strasburg like he was that first game, and maybe that was just <laughs> so special. That, that was, was insane. The best day ever in this office, probably the best day ever in this office. Because we were all around the TV. We were we incredible. were laughing. We were. I mean, it was. That was it was. It was. It was. It was. It was, it was every. It was your birthday and Christmas and everything, and you got every present that you wanted, and it was all there in one little, you know, two, two hours. hours. Yeah. It was, it was as Nathan Rody would say, awesome. So, um, yeah, I lost my. But they're going to keep. No, they're going to. But you know, a generation ago, though, JJ, you had Mark Fidrich. Do two that. generations ago now. Two generations ago, 40 years ago, 38 years ago. They had Mark Fidrich, and then it was gone. And when he got hurt, he gone. It was shoulder, it was everything with him, and he was done. And that was because of the way he was used. Mm-hmm. So the industry has done a better job of avoiding Mark Fidrich-like disasters. And it's not just that the medical... Because part right. of it is is that the medical has improved, right. but it's not just that. There are there's In addition to that, the industry is... Avoiding some of those things. It's a smarter industry. But I do think it is a fair question that teams to be for teams to be asking. It can be difficult to buck this, but it's like, okay, what are we gaining? Are we actually gaining anything? And maybe I'm being heretical by throwing this out there. But the 75 pitch first, most of your first year, full year, are we gaining something from that? And I don't know if that answer is, is uh, again... I don't think that's heretical at all. I think, it's a I think there's a... Question it's now. at least... I'm not saying that we aren't gaining something as an industry from it, but I don't think we know we are. Absolutely. I got draft calls to make, but uh, I do want to wrap by reading this question from Reggie, longtime podcast listener and longtime contributor uh, via emails. And it just kind of wraps it all up. And he's, he's just said he's concerned about the rash of pitching injuries. Um, young guys have very solid mechanics going down. Matt Harvey, Jose Fernandez, um, list keeps growing. Is it the number of innings? Catfish Hunter, Fergie Jenkins, Nolan Ryan regularly threw 250 to 300 plus innings. Jack Morris approximated that in the 1980s. Not Hall of Famer Jack Morris, so doesn't really deserve to be in that same discussion with those other guys. I thought he did. No, Jack Morris did not make it. They're not me saying now Hall of Famer. I said not Hall of Famer. Oh, not Hall of Famer. I was like, I'm no. I was like, does, yeah. I'm saying he doesn't deserve really to be in the same conversation no. with these other guys. Were pitchers who threw a ton of innings pitching hurt and it wasn't known about? I doubt that. Is the problem nowadays that players are pitching from such a young age and they specialize too much mileage? Um, do we need to get back to the basic idea that velocity is not the key to success? And then his other questions he asks, is it in MLB's interest to study this with the NCAA, state schools, sports leagues like the ones in Texas, uh, for da- and create a database of all pit players' innings pitch counts uh, summer leagues, amateur leagues, should there be a cap on this? I'm at a loss, but clearly something has changed between the time I was in grade school during the 80s and now. I think we've addressed a lot of that, JJ. It was one of the- yeah, but I, I mean, there's some good points I wanted. Like yes. when he says, can you develop a database? Is it possible, theoretically, maybe? 
I'll tell you right now, you're not going to be able to develop a database of how many pitches guys throw. And See, I think it is up to MLB to t- be proactive with yeah. all high school associations and to take that lead and, if, and invest the money that it takes in building that kind of information. Because I do think but, it feels like, J.J., the majority of MLB teams believe in data. They believe in information. You don't think they could, I'm not, no, they I'm telling you, no. We can't even get it for at the minor league level yet. I, I mean, I bet you major league teams have that information as they don't, but for their own team, they don't have it for everyone else. What I'm saying is, is if we don't even have it at that level, how are you going to ensure that at every high school? And look, I've covered, I've covered small school high school baseball. You're lucky at a lot of these places if you have someone who can actually tell you at the end of the game who drove in the runs. I can't tell you that you can find someone who is going to keep a semi, not even a fully, but a semi-accurate count of how many pitches each guy threw. I don't think, I mean, again, I'm not saying it wouldn't be a good idea. That's that. Okay, now let's go. How Then you've got a, a centralized database so you know that this, this kid who pitched over there in high school is the same guy who's going over here as a 13-year-old and pitching... You know, he's on the freshman team here, and you're keeping track at the freshman level, too, to do this. And then he's going on this his travel team on the weekends. I don't think you'd have incontrovertible Major League Baseball caliber data. I do think if Major League Baseball took the lead on this, I do think you would have a lot more information if they made this a priority. I don't think you'd have 100% lockdown data. But I think if you said, hey, parents, if your son pitches... Here's where you can go on MajorLeagueBaseball.com, download this information for free, and here's how you keep track of your son's workload. I do think that if Major League Baseball took the lead on that, and if Major League Baseball helped run these showcases, and if the showcase circuit basically consisted of area code games and area code tryouts, East Coast showcase, and those kind of things that were run by scouts and not for profit, but for Major League Baseball to collectively control more of the development of amateur baseball, I do feel like you could make progress over a long period of time, I'm saying five to ten years, in gathering a much more robust database. And I think that's realistic, and I think it has to be a priority for Major League Baseball. Oh, sure. Will it be a lockdown database? No. But that's not the world we live in. Right. But we could do a lot better than we're doing now. But right now... the perfect be the enemy of the good? But right now, the loophole that we have real issues with is, is that... At the amateur level, we have a lot of rules in place. Little League Baseball has rules in place for how many pitches you can all High schools have usage you know, rules for pitchers in most, almost at this point, every high school federation. The, one thing the loophole, think- the issue we have is, is that understandably, and maybe this is where I don't know if MLB could do this or not, but the problem we have right now is that if you play on this team and this team in concurrent seasons... There is... You mean like high school ball and then travel ball? Right. Then you have real issues because, understandably, the high school federation has no real ability to control to know. Your high school coach may not know how many, you know. If you're competitive enough, it's like, you, the coach may not know, or the travel team coach may not right. know that you went seven innings on Tuesday. Absolutely, no. Well, no, they do know that. Yeah. I mean, like, you, well, you don't play travel ball at the same time as you're playing high school baseball. And I right. mean, so that's that, that's uh, no, I mean, but the, no, at the amateur, at the lower levels, though, I'm not talking about high school. Sorry, I should, uh, but 
You may be playing on your Little League team and a travel team as a 13, 14-year-old, and those two, you're going off here, you're playing here, and there are, there are kids who are playing multiple teams at the same time, and, or two different travel teams. There are kids who are playing, and you do not know. This kind of the travel schedule, is, travel ball schedule is crazy because you, you, throw, you run one tournament, and you realize, holy cow, this is very profitable. Let's have another. Because, again, the only motive there is profit. Mm -hmm. They can say there are other motives, but the motive there is profit. Pure and simple. That's the American way. I get it. Major League Baseball has to get past that and look for other motives. Of how The motivation for Major League Baseball has to be how do we make our game at the big league level better. And that's why I think it needs to well, get more again, involved. Again, I, I, I think, I, I think the perfect... Day, I, would real quick, I would advocate if college baseball wanted to go to a seven-inning game, I'd have no problem with it. Zero problem with it. I think that would be a better thing for college baseball, personally, than having pitch limits because the games do matter and winning does matter at that level and that's something that I think is good and different about college baseball but if you want to go to a seven inning limit I wouldn't have a huge problem with it I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world for college baseball and to wrap up it I had, would limit pitch counts to, to wrap up I, I I had people on Twitter like and again I'm not saying I'm an expert by any way but I've tried to talk to a lot of smart people about this in the last years but, but we've been talking to people about this for years but especially in the last couple of months with all the injuries going on and the question I've been asked is, is, so if you had a kid in high school or whatever, you know, or 12 or whatever, what would you do? And I, I think there are some pretty simple things. But none of this, in all these, there's a lot of things that in moderation are good, but in excess are really bad. And, okay, so if you've got a kid who pitches, first thing is, is that there needs to be an off season. And I mean... You have four months where Absolutely. you say, I don't care. You aren't picking up a baseball. Four months where you do not throw. Not that you're going to throw lightly. Not, you know, you have a period of time where you are, if you want to throw catch with your dad in the backyard where you're just throwing the ball from flat ground, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe. I'm, but beyond that, you're not getting on a mound for, there is a four month period where you're not touching a mound. You're not doing anything like that. You're not long tossing. You are. See, I don't know about that. I mean, I mean, like, you need to rest, period, but four months is pretty locked down. And some people think that you just need to throw, J.J. No, I know, but I, 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 buy, I, buy, I buy the Eric Cressy argument on this that the ligament needs time. And you know what, during, during that time? Go play another sport. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. You know what? Shut down this. Go play. Pick your sport. But go play another sport because the great thing about it is, is your that athlete. you're going to get – you're going to – you're not going to keep your athlete – you're going to add to your athleticism. If you play another sport, take your pick of what it is. If you play another sport, you're going to work muscles that you don't work. One of the issues we see here is, is we see a lot of pitchers who the description of them is that they're pretty stiff. Right. Why are they stiff? Because they've just been pitchers. If you're just a pitcher, you get really good. You, get, you, get, you yeah. are more advanced than the average 18-year-old at repeating your delivery, at throwing, you know, having velocity, all that. What you don't have with that, the more specialized you are, you get outside that comfort zone of that, that, that one thing you do, and you're generally, guys who would have been really good athletes have lost some of that athleticism. If you're playing other sports, you're just... Think of, just think of David Cohn. You don't think of David Cohn as some premier athlete, but he was a very athletic pitcher. And when David Cohn needed a pitch, sometimes he made one up on the fly. 
And that takes athleticism. Mm-hmm. And that takes an athletic ability and a looseness and flexibility that not all these pitchers have. Especially the stiffness, to me, comes from overtraining. Whether it's way, too much weight training or where there's uh, the emphasis on just strength and uh, not flexibility and also uh, overtraining just doing the same actions over and over right. again and kind of getting in a rut. I, I think some of that stiffness, though, is, is, is not just like being muscle-bound at all. It's also just if you don't ask your body to do things, it doesn't learn how to do them. Right. And that's where if it's basketball or it's soccer or whatever, if you're playing basketball in addition to playing baseball, you are going to – you're going to – Force your body to do things on the basketball court that you would never ask it to do playing baseball. Not all of that's going to translate over, but it is going to. Some of it is. Right. I mean, there's, there's a level of athleticism that's needed to in pitching that guys lose when all they do is pitch. So. Mm-hmm. The same way that if you're a two-way guy, you know, you, you keep some of that athleticism. There, There's a reason. The best way I can ex- explain this to you is there's a reason that guys who were two-way guys in high school or even two-way guys in college – they get pitchers get to the big leagues and they're not very good hitters. Why is that? If you don't work on something, yeah. you lose it. Exactly. And whether, whether you're Tim Hudson you or don't, Tom Markham or whoever, you're, you're, you lose some of that. In most cases, if you're not working on something, you lose some of that athleticism. JJ, this was fun. It uh, was. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to look up uh, Carlos Rodon's hitting stats. They're pretty good this year. Uh, he's 13 for 42, so in 310 with these bats, that's pretty good. So he's he's still using it. He doesn't take as much beeps as he used to, though. He's trying to focus on pitching, so the batting practice stuff. All It's funny. I'll wrap on this. And there's so much criticism of his workload this year. You know, his freshman year, he pitched on three days rest the first couple weeks of the year, and it was just in short bursts, 50, 60 pitches. They ramped him up toward pitching in their rotation. And then don't forget, his freshman year, his uh, super regional start against Florida was rained out after three, four innings. And he did not. He was not brought back after a longish rain delay, and then he did not come back the next day. And they got eliminated in two games. And that team had not been to the Cowboys <laughs> Series at that time since 1967. And they used it pretty properly. He's a big boy. He's been. I, my my thing is, he has given he, us no indication that he's been overused. The quality of his stuff keeps getting better as the course of the year goes on. And his 131st pitch in one game of 132 was 95 miles an hour. So. Oh, I, I think. I can have you if you want to have concerns about his workload. I understand it for a couple of things. One, unlike most of these guys, he was prominent as a freshman. As another, he throws a lot of sliders. That's the issue. As I a, think that's always been the issue. That, he, he throws a lot of sliders. There are a lot of guys we can think of who they left their best stuff in their early years because they were slider heavy. I mean, it's a tough pitch to throw. That all being said, and again, yes, he's been worked hard this year. He was worked hard last year. He was worked hard the year before that. That being said, we do not know. Again, if you want to say that you have concerns about it, I understand it. Right. If you say you know, I'm telling no, you don't know because we don't know. Trevor Bauer was worked harder than him, and maybe Trevor Bauer is an outlier. Trevor Bauer averaged 128 pitches a start his junior year. He topped 130 regularly. He went top 120 11 times that year. And and I'll tre- we, he may blow out tomorrow. Trevor Bauer, right as of right now, has made every start that his pro team has asked him to make. And he was he's never he had to stay on the DL. He was prepared for that. That's what he trained to do. And again, that doesn't 
That doesn't mean that I think that every pitcher should go out there and throw 130 pitches every start. And some of them can't. I mean, Tyler Beatty can't get past eight innings. He's gone eight innings once in his three-year college career. Once. So some guys can't do it. And I think Tyler Beatty's physically capable of doing it. He just doesn't. He's just not pitch efficient enough. So. Well, and also, they're, Vanderbilt's a team that, if he was at... If no, he, no, you huh? can't say that. Sonny Gray, 125 no, no. pitches, went back out for the eighth. No, 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 no. I'm not saying there are exceptions. You didn't let me finish. I'm saying Vanderbilt's a team that, as a general rule, their guys throw a few less pitches than, say, a team like NC State. Now, look back. If you look at... If you look at I, I think that's probably not true because NC State hasn't had other pitchers good enough to go deep in games. What I'm saying is, is that if you compare... Sonny Gray, I went back and looked at the pitch counts. Sonny Gray is like half Carlos's size. I, right. Vanderbilt does not have a pitcher. I will stand by it. Vanderbilt does not have a pitcher who regularly goes 120 plus. I'm not saying they haven't had guys. That's, that's correct. That same way correct. that if, I get, if you say Florida, Florida never has a guy go 120. That is correct. And Florida has and a I'm not saying again. pick who got hurt in Karsten Whitson who blew out his shoulder. It is just not. Well, we don't even, he he's had shoulder injuries. We don't even know. He's a shell of his former. Right, I'm he's not saying surgery. that. He's had surgery. He's had surgery. He Although to, no, he missed all of last year. No, I know he had surgery, but didn't the doctor say that they couldn't find anything? No, he missed okay. an entire year with shoulder surgery. It was significant, yeah. and he's in the low 90s now, and he's never thrown more than 98 pitches previous to that in his Florida career. And he started on senior day, and he didn't last one inning. And Vanderbilt put up a 16 spot in mm-hmm. that game. Every college program, with the exception of Florida has some pitch count hickeys that you can point oh, to. Oh, I'm not saying they don't. Tyler Beatty's had 30-plus pitch innings, too. Every I would point to Tyler Beatty as a ding on Vanderbilt, because I've talked to scouts about it, and I would point to Sonny Gray's end-of-season usage that year. Vanderbilt's bullpen, which used to be expansive, shriveled up. And, hey, Grayson Garvin's another guy, SEC Pitcher of the Year, didn't pitch for a year and a half after that in pro ball. I'm just saying. Oh, I'm not, NC State has not. Ha- I'm not trying to defend. NC I was going to say, but you're but you're actually other, saying that I'm saying something I didn't say. No, I'm saying that NC State's never had a pitcher good enough to for the, for us to know whether they would do what they've done with Carlos Rodon to other pitchers. They haven't had anybody good enough no, in the last ten years. I, I disagree with you on that. I went back, look back at Jake Buchanan's pitch counts. They're higher than Sonny Gray's. Yeah, He's Jake, not as good, but they were higher. I, I, I'm not disagreeing with that. But Jake Buchanan, well, Corey Bazzoni. Let's go back to what Corey Bazzoni was a guy with stuff. Jake Buchanan's an 88, 91, 92 guy. Always was. No, I'm not saying he was wasn't. That, well, I don't think you can compare him to Sonny Gray. No, what I'm saying is, is I think I can. I'm saying that NC State's pitchers, if they're in any way a front end of the starter. They generally throw more pitches than a Vanderbilt front end starter. That's simple. That is true, but uh, but but when push comes to shove, oh, I'm not saying they're not. I'm, I, that's all I'm saying. But I'm, I'm saying that no one's blameless in this in, in college I'm baseball. Not, I'm not casting blame. I'm saying that what I'm just saying is is that there are teams that will let their guys go more pitches than other teams. I, as I'm going through this, I can see teams and it's pitch. You know, if they've had multiple guys, and you go, okay. Their general comfort level is that their guys go 90 to 110. But, 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 I understand that, but the point of that is what? Oh, I'm what not is even, the end point of that? No, I'm just saying that teams have different, have different, different teams have different comfort levels as far as where they think that. Correct, but when push comes to shove, everybody but Florida and the minor leagues, mm-hmm. everybody in North American baseball that I can think of, Besides the minor leagues and the University of Florida, when push comes to shove and they need to win, 
will extend the picture. Mm -hmm. Everybody. So I'm saying that that point of Vanderbilt in general is, is a pointless point. There isn't a great point to that. Because when push comes to shove, so they need to win. They will extend the picture. But again, you're trying to put a point here that I'm not... I'm, I'm not I'm trying to figure out what your point is. My point is is that Vanderbilt's comfort level as normal for what their guy goes is less than some other teams. But to what end? That's what I'm wondering. Like, in What I'm saying is is that in 12 or 13 of their that guy's starts, he's going to throw less... I'm not disputing the facts. That's not, I'm not, but you're trying to, I'm saying that's the point I had. All the point I was making okay. was, is that NC State's pitchers, their ace, on a normal Friday night, is going to throw more pitches. He's treated more like a college guy, whereas Vanderbilt's treated more like a pro guy. Right. And I'm not saying, again, I, I don't have David Price's pitch by unit. I'm, I'm wondering which is better. I, and I'm just saying, and I'm David saying, Price. I've said on this podcast, I've said, I don't think we have the data to say that the Vanderbilt or the Florida approach Keeps guys healthier. That's all I'm saying. Right. I'm saying that okay. different schools approach it differently, and I'm following that up by saying I'm if you can, yes, you are. Because Vanderbilt is held up to this right. in this esteem, and David Price came back on two days rest in the 2007 regional, gave up the home run that kept that had them lose to Michigan, uh, Allen Oaks in that regional, and Sonny Gray extended it the one time they went to Omaha. Vanderbilt is held up, and I'm not knocking Vanderbilt. I respect the hell out of Vanderbilt. But they are held up as this paragon of virtue, and I don't believe they deserve that credit. That's and, all I'm saying. And so I was going to say, so you're, yeah, you're bringing back, I was going to you're bringing, because all I'm Vanderbilt's saying. Vanderbilt's the wrong example to but use for me. All I'm saying is, is that I do not think that you, that there is data out there to say that the, because I do think it's a different approach, but that the Florida, which is the strict, or the Vanderbilt, which is the strict with exceptions to the lower right. pitch count approach. Go back I don't think that you can say at the college level right now, and I'm still studying it. I haven't finished the story. But I don't think you can say, you can point to it and say, that's worked better for long-term development right. than the UCLA approach where they had Garrett Cole and Trevor Bauer in right. the same rotation the who, who they used to a higher level of workload. I'll than, tell you this. Who would, and I'll just say again, so all the attention was on North Carolina next year, last year negatively, with good reason. Vanderbilt did basically the same thing with David Price. They essentially did the same thing, with, I will note, the same, actually a worse result. Yeah, Ken Emanuel got hit, but North Carolina won its regional against a Southern team, a Florida team, an FAU. Vanderbilt, an SEC team, lost its regional to a Big Ten team. So let's just... And so you're talking about, before you, we were, we're looking at data 2010 plus, that was 2007. So we're just, that's why, I'm, again, I'm sensitive to it because they have such a what have you done for me lately. Vanderbilt has this reputation. I'm not knocking them, but they're not this paragon of virtue. And if there was one pitching coach, if you asked me about, you started this whole thing mm -hmm. with son, mm -hmm. who would I want my son to play for? Johnny Savage. UCLA. I know that'd be 3,000 miles away and that would stink, but... One college coach he'd play for, John Savage. Period. Well, why is that? And guess what? Well, <laughs> number one, because I met him in 1998, and USC is my all-time, USC 98, all-time favorite college baseball team. He was the pitching coach for that guy, but he was also the pitching coach for Mark Pryor. He was the pitching coach for all these UCLA guys. And guess what? UCLA produced a lot more pros under Gary Adams, where they just rolled the balls out. That was the criticism. 
and John is certainly not, he certainly manages more on the college tip, but I think he takes care of pitchers' health. I think he manages pitchers extremely well. I think he has a long track record of doing that, and he's also won a national championship. So Vanderbilt does a great job of that, has been to Omaha once, and you can find, you have high workloads for Cole and Bauer. They were prepared to do those things. Vanderbilt did not prepare their pitchers to do that, and then they got to Omaha, and here comes Sonny Gray having to throw more. I have more of a problem with someone taking a pitcher outside their comfort zone, asking them to do something they've never done before on the biggest stage than I do with Garrett Cole. We've trained you. We've built you up to throw 100, 110, 120. Garrett Cole was used to it. Trevor Bauer was used to it. I think that's the much better approach than to all of a sudden you've never gone more than 125 pitches and all of a sudden Omaha in the eighth inning were doing it. So that's I am sensitive to the Vanderbilt thing because I think that because of some a lot of positive media attention, they get more credit than they deserve. So I respect DJ. I respect Tim Corbin to the highest degree. And I know Tim Corbin and John Savage are tight. I remember Mark Pryor talking about showing up the what the weight room in the in uh, the Netherlands in 2000 with the college national team and Savage and Corbin had beaten him to the workroom. And the next morning he beat them. He wanted me. He had got up. At, they were there at 5:30. That meant he was there the next morning at five. So I know that Corbin and Savage are similar in those regards. No one's perfect, but to me, the best track records of college baseball pitching development to me is John Savage, and everybody else falls in line behind. So I thought it was great for college baseball and for pitcher development that John Savage won a national championship last year because I think his way is the best way because he expects a lot of his pitchers. He does not abuse them, but he expects a lot out of them. And for the most part, they deliver. And one other thing they do is, is it's a fastball-based approach. A lot of them, but Trevor Bauer did not fill up the zone with fastballs. He threw six pitches or seven, and he threw too many of the other ones. But, J.J., I think you get, in, you, you get out of it what you put into it. So if you I, – I, I, I think we baby pitchers in general. I, I think that I'm not a fan of the 75 to 90 pitch thing at all. No, you're, you're you're not. I I, I'm more. I'm much country. more. I'm much more. Pitchers pitch. It, it, I pitch. Right. I saw this started with the four months off. I don't think that's right for everybody. I would let someone like Eric Cressy look at. I think that someone like Eric Cressy would look at what a pitcher's workload has been during the year. No. Well, he says the thing he says is, and I think there's some logic to this, is that the ligament stretches while you pitch. The ligament actually shrinks back during that off time. Now again, and his emphasis is. That doesn't mean sit on the couch. Right. That, but that does mean, he says, I want time. You regain stability in the ligament during that off time. And there, there's, and again, I, I'm not I smart would, enough. I'm guess, not smart enough to understand that. I would guess that Eric Cressy would throw that out for most pitchers, but that he would, that there's always flexibility. Because when I read that at Q&A, it seemed like he was a guy who was going to work very specifically. And he wants pitchers to work specifically with their trainers and there are always exceptions to anything like that. But four months off is a long time off. Three to four. Is, and that's Dr. Andrews, too. Dr. Andrews is, you know, which, that, again. You could, we're, probably, you could probably work in a log toss every once in a while in the middle of the night. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, and we, and we have different, you know, there's again, no, we're, we're no and we have different, neither, neither yeah. of us are, we, we both are very interested in this. We don't have the data to know which of us is right on that. We're not even, I'll go a step further. Neither of us 
have the medical background to know, which is all we can do on that. On some of this, on some of this, I don't understand the ligament enough to be able to speak with, you know, I have to take, I'm, and again, I'm passing it along. Journalists aren't pretending to be experts, JJ, so they're having informed opinions, so you don't have to make that qualifier, but we've talked to a lot of people, and there are a lot of people in the game who aren't doctors either, but they're making these decisions, have to make informed decisions, and what I do hope is that at the bigger level, that we start to see that this three or four year trend, we start to see the game trying to make more holistic, more general decisions that are not short-sighted. Let's get this pitcher healthy with the surgery. Let's try to think of things as an industry. We're not part of that industry, but we're observers of the industry. But we are. We like we're, to see people in the industry. We're, and in some ways we are too, that we're at a baseball magazine. If the baseball, we want baseball to succeed. If baseball succeeds, our magazine does well. If baseball right. fails... You know, if baseball becomes tennis, we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, if baseball becomes boxing, we're in trouble. Absolutely. So we would like to see the game uh, figure out answers to these problems, to these questions. So, All right, JJ, good stuff. We, we, you finally brought it out of me in the last uh, 20 minutes. So hope everybody listened to the whole thing. Uh, it's the longest podcast. We haven't done one of those in a while. Don't forget Baseball America's draft offer. Subscribe now and receive one extra month of access with any premium content subscription. BaseballAmerica.com slash subscribe to order. For J.J. Cooper, he's at JJCoop36. I'm at John Manuel BA. We'll talk to you next time on the Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody. Guns are a little better and they may add a mile an hour. If you went back 10 years ago, you'd probably be talking about, in a draft any year, you'd be talking about three or four. Guys are throwing harder. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.